Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series, Upholding the Truth, with a message titled, That the World May Know. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, the journal Christianity Today, it featured an article that dealt with marketing Jesus. You know, in the article, they argued that evangelism is not the same as marketing a product. Good salespeople are not necessarily good evangelists, so why is that? Well, because we don't sell Jesus the way Starbucks sells coffee or the way Honda sells cars. In fact, said Christianity Today, the whole marketing mentality takes away from the gospel. If we use a marketing approach, we give up something that's essential. Why? Well, CT gave a number of reasons. Number one, in a marketing culture, the consumer is king, selecting those products that beat their needs and rejecting the things that don't suit them. But in Christ, we surrender everything to Christ and recognize that Jesus is king. He then, as our creator, disciples us to understand what we truly need, our perceived needs, Don't determine what we buy. He as creator tells us what we must have. It's called surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Second, in a consumer culture, various brands compete on the market for your loyalty. So if you switch from a PC to a Mac, PC loses, Mac wins. But if we switch from Christ to other gods, Christ doesn't lose, we do. So once we try to market the faith, we give people the wrong idea about what the life of God is all about. And with that, Christianity Today made a bold statement. If you feel like a used car salesman talking about Jesus, the solution isn't a smoother pitch. It's a renewal of the church. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So let's talk about bringing the gospel to the world. That was Jesus' last command to us, and it's our first response to him. Isn't it interesting then that as Paul seeks to emphasize that, he doesn't tell us the best methodology in doing that or offer practical tips? Rather, he reduces this down to one fundamental statement. He wants us to know how to behave. That's because Paul knows that when the church is the church, when we act the way God designed for us to act, the whole world will hear. It's no more difficult than that. Our task is to be what God wants us to be. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young, capable, and faithful apprentice, a man named Timothy. Timothy has been sent to the church in Ephesus because the church has been destroyed by bad behavior, and that included false teachers and the placing of improper people into leadership. This was destroying the church, but it was also making it impossible for the people of Ephesus to hear the gospel, and that was a tragedy. So let's talk about motivation. And Paul gives us three pieces of motivation. First, we belong to God. Verse 15a says, If we delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And the metaphor Paul uses here is not that of a building, but of a family. 
Just like human families, God's family is central to teaching us how to behave. Let me illustrate that. In the 1700s, two families from the state of New York were studied very carefully. In fact, this is fascinating. Many generations were traced to find out what happened to those two very different families. Let me tell you about one of them. This was a man named Max Jukes. He was an unbelieving man, a man who lacked character, lacked principle. He married a woman much like himself. Among his known descendants, 300 were vagrants. 440 physically destroyed their lives through immoral living. 130 went to prison for an average of 13 years each, seven of them for murder. 100 became alcoholics, 60 became habitual thieves, 190 became prostitutes. Of the only 20 who learned a trade, half of them learned it in a state prison. That was the family of Max Jukes. Of that same era came the family of Jonathan Edwards, and it's been studied much. He was a great pastor, an evangelist, and a revivalist in the 1700s, a godly and a devout man. He married Sarah, a woman of equal godliness to himself. Of his family, one became a U.S. vice president. Three became congressmen. A hundred became university professors. Fourteen became presidents of universities. Sixty became authors of some very famous books. Sixty became medical doctors. Thirty became judges. A hundred became attorneys. And over three hundred became pastors, missionaries, and theology professors. (laughs) The point is simply this. Families are the incubation ground for the kinds of behavior that shapes not only future generations, but shapes everyone who comes in contact with them. So here's the question. How would you like to have been a part of Max Juke's family? What a disaster. How would you like to have been a part of Jonathan Edwards' family? What a blessing. What a heritage. What grace. Now listen to what Ephesians 1 verse 5 says. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. We who have come spiritually from the sinful fallen family of Adam have been adopted into the family of God's own dear son. When we say we belong to God, we say we belong to God's family. We have become brothers and sisters, a family together by adoption. And now being in this family, well, that forms our training. It forms our understanding of what's good and decent. It forms the kind of behavior patterns that are expected and rewarded. It forms our hope for the future, our faith in God. Our new family forms the standard for our new living, our conduct, our behavior. This is one of the reasons we can't imagine saved people without a church, without a family. And by the way, that's why God appoints some to be pastors and teachers so that our spiritual future might be directed according to God's sovereign design. The family learns how to live, and that's why it's so disastrous if the wrong teachers are misleading God's family, they set improper standards. So let's review. Paul's giving us motivation for the church to be the church, and the first motivation is that we belong to God's family. Here now is the second. God lives among us. It's found in the second half of verse 15, which is the church of the living God. Now please notice the phrase, the church of the living God. In the city of Ephesus stood one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. It housed a great statue of the fertility goddess, which was said to have dropped from heaven. People venerated her so much so that they believed she occupied her temple. She was a dead goddess. Her statue was lifeless. 
That's the difference that Paul's trying to make here. Sure, the church at Ephesus did not have a magnificent building like the one that wowed the locals and travelers alike. But then on the other hand, the church of Jesus had the living God. The Bible uses the phrase living God some 28 times. You know, the first time it uses it is in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses asks Israel this question, what nation or what people has ever stood at the foot of a mountain and all of them actually heard the voice of the living God speaking to them and lived? And the point is, this isn't a concept. It's not just a theology. This is an actual living God who rains plagues down on Egypt, creates food out of nothing for them to eat, puts a blazing fire before them, and speaks out of a mountain. This is not a concept. This is the living God. The next time we read the phrase, Joshua uses it as Israel stands on the banks of the flooded Jordan River, ready to enter into the promised land. He says, This is how you will know that we have a living God. And with that, God parts the Jordan River and Israel goes through on dry ground. The phrase is used in Daniel, when Daniel survives being thrown into the lion's den. Each time, it serves as a notice that God stands ready to do miracles, save his people, deliver them from terror, answer their prayers, change their lives. And when Paul uses it here, he means the same thing. He means that God actually lives among his adopted people, the church. And as such, they can expect God to deliver and save and hear prayers and to change lives. Our God acts. Our God challenges us to obey. And in our obedience, he never abandons us. You see, that's the second motivation. We don't just do church. We are the church. We are adopted into the family of God, and our God is not an absent father. He lives among us. That's why our behavior matters. Now, here's the third piece of motivation. We have a mission to the world. See, the last part of verse 15 reads, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. See, what an impressive thing to say about the church. An integral goal of this ministry is to ensure that Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. That's why we emphasize a diversity of unique Bible teaching and engagement resources available through a variety of mediums, radio, online, free mobile applications, YouTube, just to name a few. Providing these resources ensures that anyone who desires to hear the gospel can do so at their convenience and at no cost. We're grateful for the incredible opportunity that's ours to share the gospel in your community, across Canada and around the world. But this couldn't happen without like-minded friends, partners and donors across the country. This Thanksgiving, we say thank you for blessing us and in turn we pray that this ministry continues to bless all those searching to know Jesus better. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, Or to offer a gift of support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. To the church alone has fallen the task of making the truth of the gospel known to the world. No university, no newspaper, no government, no association of people has such a task. It's the task of the church alone. We've been given the truth And we have the task of making that truth known in such a way that men and women may put their faith and trust in Christ 
and become one family with us. A buttress, well, that's a part of a supporting structure of an ancient building. Pillars were mounted on them. The pillars held up the roof. Paul might have been thinking again of the Temple of Diana. It contained 127 pillars, each donated by a king. Each pillar was made of marble, and it was studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. And together, these pillars held up an immense, absolutely stunning roof that was seen throughout the entire city and so gave a testimony to the pagan religion. Even so, each local church is a pillar that holds high the truth of the gospel so that the world might see. You see, the roof of the temple of Diana has fallen. All that remains today is a part of a single column with some disassociated fragments. But the pillars that hold up the truth of Christ, it must never fall. We must always hold up the truth to the watching world. So this then is our motivation for proper behavior in the church. We're a part of God's family. God lives among us, and we alone have the task of presenting Christ to the world. Now we come to verse 16a. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I want you first to notice the word confess. The word's used here as we typically use the word confession of faith. See, a confession of faith is an attempt to take the truths of Scripture and put them together in a short, coherent fashion so that everyone can understand. See, it's a way of saying when we tell the truth of the gospel, here are the things that we must remember not to forget. And what follows in verse 16 are six confessional items, six things that form the basis of the message of the church. The way verse 16 is written has led a lot of Bible teachers to believe that these six things were put together as an ancient Christian hymn or a worship chorus. You know, how many of you know that when you sing something, it's so much easier to remember than when you simply try to memorize something? So by having the church sing this, all people in the church remember what was the truth that the world needed to hear. Now, before we look at those six items which form the basis of our message to the world, please notice that Paul calls it the mystery of godliness. In other words, these items don't just form a basic confession of Christian doctrine, they form the basis of Christian living. So important. For every once in a while, I'll hear someone say, well, it's so much more about how we live than what we believe. Well, in reality, everyone lives out what they believe. Oh, I know. There are some people who say one thing and then live the other, but that's just the point, isn't it? The point is, when we find them living in a different way, we genuinely discover what they really have believed in the first place. I mean, take, for instance, you know, the man who lectures on healthy living, and he's really eating donuts and hot dogs and french fries at every meal. At the very best, we can say the man has two very different sets of beliefs, one that's theoretical, the other that's practical. You know, in everyday life, what we love and how we live and what we do, all these things reveal the mystery of our belief system. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness, says Paul. The godly church, the church that's been adopted into God's family, that has evidence of the living God among them, the church that's determined to hold the truth to the watching world has a mystery of its godliness, and that mystery is the truth, the very same truth they confess to the world. And with that, having given the motivation for the church, Paul launches into the message of the church. The first thing the church declares in verse 16, he was manifested in the flesh. Well, the word manifested means revealed. I want you to imagine going to a play, and as it begins, the curtain is down. 
You wait in expectation, and just at the right moment, the lights come up, the curtain lifts, and you see a scene or some people. No one thinks, well, that scene or those people were just created now. See, everyone knows those people in that scene was already there, but now, with the lifting of the curtain, it's been manifested or revealed. And that's exactly the beginning of the truth that we declare about Jesus. He who always existed in the form of God was manifested in the flesh. In other words, with the birth of Jesus, God lifted the curtain. And what does it reveal? Well, two things. That Jesus has always existed in the form of God, and two, that by using the term flesh, it says he truly became man. We confess this truth, the truth that Jesus Christ is at the same time fully God, fully man. Second, our text says, vindicated by the Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, the term vindicate means he's proved to be the one he said he was. It's one thing to say that the Christmas story means that God entered into the world in the form of a baby and that he shows us the love of God and that he came to die on the cross for our sins. And having done so, we are now accepted before God. See, it's one thing to say that, and it's quite another thing to prove that. But, Paul says, it has been proven. It's been proven by the Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask, How has the Holy Spirit proven the identity of Jesus? Well, first off, we should note that whenever the Bible speaks of evidence for the truth of Jesus, it almost always speaks about the resurrection. And with that in mind, listen to how Paul begins the book of Romans, Romans 1, 1 1-4. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, in other words, the Holy Spirit declared Jesus as the Son of God in the resurrection. He assured that this resurrection vindicated or proved that Jesus was who He said He was. Now, third, our text says He was seen by angels. We know that angels proclaim Jesus' birth. We know they ministered to him at his hour of temptation and that they guarded his tomb. Acts 1, 9 to 11 says that when he ascended into heaven, after 40 days of proving that he was alive, that angels came and told the church that Jesus has now ascended into heaven and will return again. In other words, this third line tells us that he had come into his final victory. His mission was successful. Fourth, he was proclaimed among the nations. Not only did God come in the flesh, Not only was he crucified for our sins and rose again as a vindication, not only did angels witness and see his final victory, but this truth is being proclaimed and it must be preached. And fifth, he was believed on in the world. Jesus is not only preached, there's a response. Many in this world believe and God makes sure. In fact, this is the mystery of the gospel. There will always be lives and hearts that will respond to the gospel. Sixth, he was taken up in glory. And that indicates, as the Bible says, that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, he is now named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Paul first preached this gospel in Ephesus, the people were being one to Christ and people were abandoning their idols and turning to Christ. The church was born and it was growing. A man in the city of Ephesus by the name of Demetrius became enraged by Paul. You know, you see, Demetrius was a silversmith who made small silver shrines of the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. And as people were coming to Christ, his business was suffering, and he decided it was payback time. So he gathered together all the trades of the city, and along with a number of others, and they started a riot in the city. 
and they directed it at Paul and all the new Christians. And he and others began to shout that Paul and the new Christians were attempting to depose Diana, or Artemis, of her magnificence. And so they began to shout all over the city, over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In other words, we have her temple, we have her image, we have her story, we have her grandeur. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, and her temple is in ruins. And her cult, well, it no longer has followers. Rather than shouting, rather than rioting, Paul writes the church, telling her of her mission, wanting her to ensure that her behavior properly reflects the glory and the truth of the gospel. And then very quietly, he writes these lines, Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the temple of the church of Jesus Christ is found all over the world. Indeed, the truth of the gospel of Jesus has been proven through his resurrection and through the testimony and the lives of his people. How thankful we must be to be a member of the church of the living God who are a buttress and a pillar of the truth. Let's continue to be and do what Christ has called us to be and do. Thanks so much, Sean, for a great series. And let me ask you in conclusion, is it possible that our lack of attention to evangelism is that we just don't have our act together within the church? Um, It is true that uh, when we're fractious, and divided or when, uh, you know, we are allowing heresy to be heard among us, which is, of course, a cause for great disunity. I mean, nobody is thinking about evangelism. And, you know, should you bring someone into that kind of a setting, I mean, it doesn't bode well uh, for them hearing the gospel. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, I've, I've known some individuals who have come to Christ in some very imperfect settings. So let's never give up, give up on evangelism. Let's never say, you know, until the church gets its act together, uh, you know, that's when we're doing evangelism. No, we're going to do it all the time. At the same time, let's recognize that as we act in accordance to Christ's purposes, evangelism becomes easier, not more difficult. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for a wonderful series. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our studies in the Bible with Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada broadcasts the teaching of the Bible so that people might grow in their understanding of God's infinite grace and the gift of their salvation. Well, this month in churches and around family tables, many will name the gifts received and added to that perhaps a prayer of praise. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. In preparation for a year of gratitude, we invite you to request your free 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. The calendar includes inspiring images of the cross, reflections upon the promises in God's Word, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and our daily Bible reading plan. Quantities are limited, so to receive your free copy today or to send a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.